Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, it's been quite an eventful week. We've had uh, a lot of uh, ups and downs. Uh, we spoke last week on the eve or the evening of Yom Atzmut, and as many of you will know, um, the evening afterwards, after Yom Atzmut had, uh, had uh, gone, had left us, uh, there was the terrible uh, terrorist attack in the ultra-Orthodox town of Elad, where three people, three Israelis, were hacked to death. Uh, terrible, terrible scenes. Thankfully, they uh, found uh, the perpetrators, I think it was two or three days later, hiding in the nearby woods. Um, and of course, today we had uh, um, the death of a, an Al Jazeera American Palestinian journalist, uh, which basically is causing quite a bit of outcry, as one can imagine. There's um, a dispute over exactly how she died. Uh, the, Palest the Palestinian side mostly are saying that there's no doubt it was Israel who killed her during uh, a security operation in Janine. The IDF went in because of all the recent terror attacks they've gone in to try and arrest or you know, uh, disband as many terrorist organizations as possible. Uh, and during um, uh, an event this morning, the IDF went into Janine and um, uh, the Al Jazeera uh, correspondent Shirin Abu Akleh uh, was killed. Uh, the Palestinians immediately blamed the Israelis, saying she was killed in cold blood. Israel disputes this, claiming uh, the overall message is we don't know yet, so we're happy for an, uh, a joint investigation, Israeli-Palestinian investigation. We're calling for the findings from the autopsy. We're calling to see the bullet that kills her. Apparently it was M16, and as both sides use M16s, it's not conclusive which side uh, killed her. Uh, Israel um, uh, distributed a video showing clearly the Palestinian gunmen this morning in Janine, which are shooting randomly, sometimes around corners without looking, just shooting in different directions. Um, uh, but the, the official line is uh, that uh, either we, uh, Israel is saying that uh, we believe that it was a Palestinian uh, a terrorist who shot her, or we just we simply don't know. And uh, there's been various, um, uh, let's say, announcements on this. Um, the uh, chief of staff, Avi Kochavi, has basically said, we just don't know. Uh, which is probably the most honest appraisal because they simply don't to this point. They're saying it could have been them, could have been us by mistake, obviously. Uh, you know, Israel does take great, great care uh, in these type of events and certainly would not have uh, killed her knowingly or wittingly. Um, but it was clear Palestinians do shoot uh, without any particular aim sometimes and with very little care for who's around it. Uh, investigations could take months. The international community has... Uh, not blamed Israel, especially not the West. Obviously, Qatar and Al Jazeera and the Palestinians and Hamas, Hezbollah did, 
but the Americans, uh, the Europeans and others have called uh, for uh, an independent investigation without specifically claiming uh, which side that they believe, which is already a, a little bit of a diplomatic success uh, for Israel, if, if you like. Um, but uh, certainly this is going to adjust uh, flames and gain a lot of attention, so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. The real, or, or sorry, you know, the, the summer session of the Knesset opened this week, and you know, there was a lot of political drama, really opened the week thinking, many th people thinking that this coalition was on its knees, days, weeks, I'm not saying it's not necessarily going to turn out that way, but you know, uh, there were those who felt that this coalition may not even see out the next couple of weeks. Um, what uh, basically transpired is, as we know from, uh, from the last couple of weeks, Iran had suspended um, its involvement in the coalition. Now, during the recess, this was pretty relevant as the Knesset wasn't meeting, no uh, votes were taking place, so it was, it was pretty irrelevant. On, on Monday when it opened, it became far more relevant. Uh, and Ram at that point hadn't yet decided what they would do. Interestingly, on Monday, there were two uh, votes of no confidence. Uh, as we've explained before, uh, and a vote of no confidence must be accompanied by an alternative government. And they have to lay out who's going to uh, be prime minister and hold various uh, positions in government. There was a feeling that, uh, especially with Ram not showing up and some of the other defectors, that they would get at least a symbolic majority. Now, they would have had to have got 61, which they would never have got. Um, so it, it, it was unlikely that uh, the opposition were going to get the 61 required, because again, they still have only 60 and they're still waiting for one more, uh, which hasn't come yet. Uh, but what was interesting is how the voting uh, took place. Uh, the one that put uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu as the prime ministerial pick, uh, fell quite significantly. I think it just got 53 votes, which, uh, 52 votes, I should say, which is the whole uh, sort of uh, right-wing religious opposition, minus, interestingly, Amichai Shikli, the original Yamina defector, uh, but also, who else was uh, absent from that vote? Interesting was Edith Silman, who was the newest uh, Yamina uh, defector and was the one who basically made the 60-60 equation. Uh, another interesting point, especially for the, uh, the Likud-led vote, was that the joint list did not vote, um, in fact, voted against. Uh, they didn't want to be seen as voting for Netanyahu, someone they hate even more than this coalition, uh, to be prime minister, so they voted again. Uh, and a similar vote was put up with Moshe Gafni, the head, the chairman of the ultra-Orthodox, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox United Torah Judaism Party, Interestingly, in that one, they abstained because, first of all, it's not Netanyahu, and second of all, they have a much closer relationship, the joint Arab list, with the Haredi parties. They generally have a relatively good relationship, even though their uh, politics on security issues may di be different. They found a lot of common ground over the years, so they have a good working relationship. So they did not vote against that law. But again, the coalition won both of these votes, and they certainly celebrated. Lapid and Bennett put out a, a video saying, they were talking about this government falling within 24 hours and here we are standing and even winning uh, two votes. So it's not so much that they won, it's just the coalition lost, largely because the joint Arab list uh, did not uh, play ball with the opposition. Now, there's a, there's a few reasons. First of all, as I said, they do not want to be seen as uh, supporting a Bibi-led government. 
The second message probably for the majority of this was, we are now significant players. We do not get told how to vote. We decide what's in our best interest. And they probably really uh, played up this role. So that was uh, uh, quite significant um, from that early. As I said, uh, Edith Silman, interestingly, not only did not uh, turn up for these votes, but interestingly did turn up for the Amina uh, faction meeting. Every Monday, all the faction uh, factions or the uh, parties have a meeting where they discuss, uh, much of it is open to the media, much of it is not, where they discuss upcoming legislation, how they're gonna vote, what their issues are, what their strategies are, et cetera, et cetera. And one would think, just as Amichai Shikli never attended a single Yamina faction meeting that Edith Zilman now, she's decided to move across the opposition, though still um, officially a Yamina um, MK would not attend such a meeting. But interestingly, she did. And there was this picture of Ayat Shaked pushing her into the faction meeting. I'm not really pushing her in, but leading her in. I think the directive was for her to be there. And Natalie Bennett gave quite a strong uh, message in front of the media, but mostly directed at Zilman. Uh, the threat of also declaring her, uh, like Shikli, as a, def a defector, official defector from the party, which means she would not be able to run with an existing party in next elections, hangs over her. Uh, and so far, she has uh, not voted, or at least on, on the biggest uh, vote on, on Monday, uh, with uh, the opposition. Uh, interestingly enough, as we came to Wednesday, um, with a more significant vote was planned, which uh, just uh, is, is needed a simple majority, was a law to disperse Knesset. Now, the interesting thing about this, because it's a private member's bill, it has, actually has to go through four, four votes. The first vote uh, just had to have a, sim a simple majority, and the opposition were quite optimistic that this would be able to vote because Ram was still suspending their, uh, their Knesset role, and no one knew exactly what was going to happen. There was long late night meetings with the uh, Islamist party's Shura Council, which is a council of sages, just like some of the ultra-Orthodox parties have council of sages, so did they. And they were very much uh, deciding uh, what was going to happen. The country, to a certain extent, and certainly those who support the coalition and the opposition were holding their breath to see which way this would go. The interesting dynamics within Ram that have been played out recently, and especially this week is at the moment with their four MPs, you find two who would like to leave, who are finding a lot of pressure. There's personal reasons. There's Ghanaim, um, uh, who is a former mayor of Sakhnin, who apparently is going to run again next uh, next year. Uh, Sakhnin is a relatively, uh, you know, hawkish Arab uh, city or town, and it would look good for him not to be in a government uh, that is supposedly, according to the Arab narrative, is doing all these uh, terrible things to Al-Aqsa and to Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera. So he's very much pushing to move out. Uh, the, the leader of his side is Walid Taha, the faction um, part of the, the faction chairman, as opposed to the party chairman, which is Mansour Abbas. Walid Taha is probably the most hawkish, in other words, is, is, is pushing the most to leave the, uh, the government. On the other side, you have Mansour Abbas, and another MK, a woman MK, whose name escapes me for the moment, who very much want to stay in. And it's very interesting to see which side would have won out. Many people were saying that Walid Taha's side would have probably, uh, was probably going to win out. And there was a lot of nervousness at one point that that's what would happen. 
or at least it would be moving in that direction. In the end, it is clear that Mansour Abbas won that particular fight. Uh, supposedly, he's given uh, the government one more chance, and there was a press release. Interestingly, all four uh, members of Knesset stood together uh, or next to Abbas when he was saying, we are ready to go back full tilt into this government. But, and here's the interesting part, while Mansour Abbas obviously won the argument to stay in the government, partly because, as we said last week, that they are suffering in the polls and they need some achievements. I think that's the case that Mansour Abbas made to his religious leadership. Uh, the religious leadership did make a caveat or whoever was involved in the decision. Uh, the negotiations with the rest of the government has been taken out of Mansour Abbas's hands and given to Walitaha, which means um, the, the negotiations will be far more hawkish, will be far more difficult with the rest of the um, uh, uh, coalition parties. Um, and also at the moment, they are um, not going to speak to Naftali Bennett. They are going to speak just to Yale Lapid. Ram is very unhappy that Naftali Bennett uh, has come out quite hawkishly, uh, they would argue, on the Temple Mount, saying that it will remain under Israel. Sovereignty, we are not prepared to negotiate over its status, not with the Jordanians, not with anyone else. And they're very unhappy about some of the other things that have happened, some of the other Yamina members. So they basically try to take out the equation. So now we have Walid Taha, who is, to a certain extent, desperate to get out of the coalition. Um, and they are not speaking to the prime minister, who is the head of the coalition. They're speaking to the number two of the coalition, the, the alternate prime minister, um, Yeh Lapid. So at the moment, they're back in the government, but uh, certainly Walid Taha is going to be taking a very, very hard line in negotiations. There are certain things they expect to see, some of them around Al-Aqsa, some of them around other issues, depending where you stand. Is Al-Aqsa uh, uh, an excuse for them, or is it a real issue on the, the, the Israeli Arab street, as well as the Palestinian street, it is a very real issue. It just remains to be uh, seen what they can get out of this and what uh, other things that can be brought to the table. Um, interestingly, as I said, so, so what happened is that when Ram, it was clear that Ram were coming back to the coalition, Likud basically uh, took uh, their vote to dispose the Knesset off the table because if they'd have put it on the table and they wouldn't have successfully passed this stage, if it would have been a 60-60, which was expected, uh, then they wouldn't have been able to put this vote up for another uh, six months. So they were not prepared to do that. They, they had hoped at the beginning of the day, or the beginning of the week, certainly, that they would be able to pass that with Ram abstaining or not uh, attending. But as soon as they understood that Ram was coming back, uh, they basically put the motion off uh, so as not to be embarrassed and to ensure that this particular law, dispersal of Knesset, wouldn't be put off. Uh, for six months. It also saved uh, Neil Orbach, who is uh, one of uh, supposedly the likely Yamina members, possibly, uh, to move across the opposition, because if it would have passed this law to dispose the Knesset, it would have gone to his committee, where he would have been responsible for whether it moved forward quickly or slowly, and there would have been immense pressure. If this would have passed the first vote, um, the other votes would have needed 61 which is very important, which would have meant that they still lacked that one vote. But what the coalition were warning, Ram and others, that even though, uh, practically speaking, uh, to get to the 61, uh, the opposition did not have it, it would mean that there would be tremendous 
pressure on uh, the members of the Amina, which they think are most likely uh, to move across, uh, to do so. So there was a lot of pressure on Ram, and in the end, they, they came back to the government, and for now, uh, it seems that they warded off uh, a major threat. Uh, interestingly enough, just before we go to questions, just to show how confident some in the uh, government are, and I've been talking about that, how optimistic they are that this government is going to you know, beat the odds and just continue and continue. Uh, Finance Minister Victor Lieberman uh, this week uh, started uh, writing the budget, started presenting aspects of the budget, um, which is quite remarkable because, as I've said before, uh, you need 61 uh, to pass the budget, and there are so many different uh, levels uh, to the budget, um, and all you need is just uh, some to fall. And as we know, at the moment, they only have 60, which means that no law will be passed by other. If everyone turns up and everyone votes the way they're supposed to, it could be that no vote will be passed. Obviously, there are votes that go this way or that way. Today, uh, the opposition did get a vote through because Yehi Golan, a member of the coalition, was giving an interview at the time. So, you know, even uh, just little things like that uh, can, can make a law go. But you can imagine something as important as a budget, which can fail the government. Um, basically, it's unless someone comes across from the opposition, there is little to no chance that the budget will pass. But the fact that Finance Minister Rito Liebman presented this week, uh, perhaps one could argue it's a little bit detached from reality, but it's probably more show to try and uh, present that everything is normal, we're moving ahead, we're a government acting as normal, as should be, as responsible, uh, right, you know, starting to write a budget, presenting it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, many people, most people in the government are still trying to present it as life is normal, we can continue, even though the Knesset is going to be very difficult over the next couple of months, this government is carrying on as usual. That's the message that uh, Liebman was trying to give across today. And that's the message that many of them would like to uh, like to show. But uh, again, going back to the Ram situation, it will not take much. Uh, it does seem that this is a last chance uh, that Ram is giving the government. And they will want to see something uh, for uh, their risk taking, as they would see it, for sitting with the government one last time. So. Uh, it remains to be seen exactly how that will play out. But certainly, it, the, the government is not tottering at the moment, but it's it could happen any day. It could be that at one point, the Shura Council will change its mind. It could be that the balance of power will move more towards Walitaha, as it already has started to, away from Mansour Abbas. All of these things could bring about uh, early elections. And if the, uh, a member of Yamina or one of the other right-wing parties decides enough is enough, I move across the opposition. Again, that would mean that this government stays unnumbered. So there are so many moving parts, and this week really just showed how fragile this government is. But at the moment, certainly it was a relatively good week for the government. With that, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. The first question we have in is from an anonymous attendee. Do a majority of nonpartisan Israelis, if there are any, believe that Israel would be better off with Bibi back as prime minister, or do they think he would, or do they not think he would be better than Bennett as the leader? Um, the answer is hinted in the question: Who who are these nonpartisan Israelis? When, when when it comes to Bibi, there's very very few nonpartisan. You either love him or you hate him. There are some in between, but not many. Um, it's really 
kind of evenly split again. If we had elections according to all the polls, neither side would get a majority. Uh, the Arab list would prevent either side from getting majority. The Arab list, according to recent polls, have actually expanded its support at the cost of Ram to eight seats, meaning again, neither, neither side would. So it's, it's very hard to find these nonpartisan Israelis, especially when it comes to Netanyahu. I don't think there's too many Israelis after 13 years of power, that would probably happen everywhere, uh, who have you know, no particular feelings one way or another. People have very strong opinions about uh, Netanyahu. Most either love him or loathe him. Um, so it, it, it all depends where you sit uh, politically. Thank you. And Eric asks, why is Israel having difficulties plugging the holes in the security fence that the terrorists are coming through to get to Israel? It's a very long fence. And don't forget, the interesting thing is, uh, for years, these holes were left purposely, one might argue, so um, Palestinian workers can get in and out. There is this feeling that to help the Palestinian economy, to lower the flames, to lower the tensions, you have to let in tens of thousands of Palestinian illegal workers uh, with very little oversight come in. And that was a policy basically supported by the last government. And no one really changed it until the terror attacks happened. Now, those holes have largely been plugged up. But don't forget, it's impossible to monitor such a fence. It's a very, very long, I, I don't know the exact uh, kilometer or mile uh, length of it, but one can imagine all you need is one person with, uh, you know, what are they called, uh, cutting utensils and you, you can get through. And there, there were at least, maybe there still are, lots and lots of different places and the army can't be everywhere at once. They're trying as much as possible. And certainly according to news reports, uh, most, if not all of the, the, the holes have been plugged up. But, you know, again, it, it's a very large uh, uh, amount of space. And where there's a will, unfortunately, there's usually a way to get through it. Thank you. Len Levin asks, do most average Israelis consider the right to visit the Temple Mount a very important issue? Uh, he notes that many Haredi rabbis believe that this is that this right may violate Jewish law. Um, most Israelis don't. Most Israelis don't care about it. Uh, the numbers have been growing and there are growing numbers of even ultra-Orthodox rabbis who allow it. Um, it's a relatively modern phenomenon that people did not, uh, uh, rabbis did not allow it because the greatest sages in history did allow it. Um, but today uh, there's a growing number because there are so many people going up. Um, it's, th there is obviously resistance among some ultra-Orthodox, but if you look at the numbers going up, there's always a very large ultra-Orthodox contingent, which shows that there are quite a number of leaders in the Hasidic world and non-Hasidic world who do allow. But for the average Israeli, the average secular or traditional Israeli, it's not really an issue. It's not something they think about. It's not something they consider uh, doing at all. Uh, and certainly a rabbinical ban or not uh, is not really going to affect that opinion one way or another. Thank you. And going a little off topic, uh, Carrie Hillebrand asks, what are the pres present rates of immigration from the Ukraine and from Russia? What percentage remain in Israel after obtaining Israeli passports? Um, I... I I haven't really seen the numbers on that. I think there's been quite healthy um, aliyah from Ukraine and more quietly from Russia, uh, obviously uh, in the last few months. 
uh, certainly this year is going to be at the end of it, a bumpy year for Aliyah, breaking records, uh, you know, not necessarily the way Israel would want it. Um, I don't know, I mean, I can't imagine many Ukrainians who have come through have gone back because the war is still raging, although obviously there are some places which are now safer uh, than others, especially in the west part of the country. So I don't think too many have gone back and there's all these programs to help uh, Ukrainian students in universities, to accept them to schools. So the, the country is doing as much as possible to try and welcome these immigrants and make them feel, and even those who are not immigrants, uh, to make them feel welcome. But I don't have the uh, exact numbers. And I'm not sure if you'll ever really be able to get the, the numbers of someone who's taken citizenship and has left just as, you know, there are people who made Aliyah from, from the West uh, and officially are Israeli citizens, but they have left and reside because it's, you don't really have to say anything to any authorities when you decide to move abroad. Yeah, of course, thanks. Uh, and on Ms. Attendee asks, can you comment on Biden's projected visit sans security to East Jerusalem? Isn't this an insult and a U.S. comment on the president's attitude towards Jerusalem? And will the president of the United States be welcomed? Um, well, I mean, this is just conjecture at this point. We don't know. First of all, the official visit is obviously being planned behind the scenes. But I don't think an itinerary has been decided. I'm sure there's all sorts of ideas and there's all sorts of advisors or advice from outside where he should go, where he shouldn't go. Um, so I think it's a little bit too premature to talk uh, specifics, especially something obviously is controversial about that. Um, it depends what, if he does go to East Jerusalem, it depends what he's doing there. Um, but I don't think there would ever be a situation where an Israeli government or prime minister would uh, stop a president from visiting Israel because of uh, you know, uh, a visit uh, like that. It'd be very, very difficult for Israel, obviously, to do such a thing. Thank you so much. And this one uh, might need all remaining four minutes, but can you please give a general opinion about having Arab parties in the Knesset? Uh, is it absurd to have outspoken enemies of the state legally deciding? Well, First of all, um, Arab Israelis have been in every single Knesset from 1948 onwards. This is the first time an Arab party has been in the government, but certainly not the first time that an Arab MK has been in the government. And in fact, there have been Arab ministers uh, in the past. Um, ostensibly, every uh, member of Knesset has to take an oath. Uh, some take it more seriously than others. Um, you know, there are, there are parts which obviously ultra-Orthodox uh, parties wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable about doing, but they do it anyway. Um, but there are lines, obviously, and uh, if you support terrorism, if you openly uh, act against Israel, I, I can't remember the exact rules, but there are rules. But so far, the only MK that I know of that was ever thrown out for breaking the rules or not allowed to run was Mekahana. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, who was an American immigrant who was considered to be far right, and some of his views were considered racist and controversial. And don't forget, this was under Menachem Begin. It wasn't a left-wing uh, government uh, at the time. Uh, so, you know, unless they do something very, very specific, there are usually, what happens is usually just before elections, um, there are contests by both sides saying this party or this individual MK uh, should not run because of their outrageous views. 
and there's usually a, um, a parliamentary committee and depending on who's in power at the time, if it's the right wing, then usually they will manage to um, throw out uh, a member or party, but that's usually overruled by the election commission, by the judicial commission. Um, again, so, you know, supposedly they know the rules, they know what's allowed, they know what's not allowed. And uh, all of these part, all the, the, the current MKs are allowed to run. The ones uh, that the party that's in the government, Again, you know, we can find all sorts of statements that were made uh, beforehand, but certainly Mansour Abbas, the leader of the party, has made statements that were unprecedented uh, in Israeli history uh, from an Arab leader to say he recognizes Israel as a Jewish state, he uh, wants to work alongside the Jewish and Zionist parties, he wants a better future, he wants more cohesion, he wants to end division, he wants to work for the betterment of his people, that's certainly a trend to be welcomed. Uh, and if, if that can continue, that's certainly something that's uh, very positive for Israeli society. Having said that, yes, there are members of Knesset, some of whose comments are made problematic, have been considered by some others um, to be incitement, to be incitement to terrorism, to stand against Israel as a national homeland of the Jewish people. But again, until a, 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 a judicial decision, that they cannot run in elections, they will continue to run and they will continue to serve Knesset as they have done since 1948. Well, thank you so much for that answer. Uh, we have come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. And for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Robert Spencer discussing freedom of speech about Islam, increasing or diminishing. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.